This is the Scott Thompson Show podcast. All right, Don Meredith has resigned uh, his seat in the Senate after having a sexual relationship with a teenage girl. He will, however, continue to receive his $25,000 per year in uh, pension pay uh, because he has served six years as a uh, senator. Uh, he decided to step down before all, all of this uh, ran its course and, and so on and so forth. Uh I guess in the end, figuring this was the best for the Senate. That was his answer anyway. Let's bring in Cheryl Collier. She is Associate Professor of Political Science, University of Windsor, and with us now. Hello, Cheryl. How are you today? I am fine. Uh, Thank you, Scott. Yourself? Good. Thanks for taking the time to join us. We appreciate this. Uh, Why resign instead of letting all this run its course? Why do you think you decided to step down? Um, there's precedent for this. Anytime a senator has gotten in trouble in the past, uh, the senator usually sees uh, some value in, in uh, falling on his own sword or her own sword uh, before the sword is, is wielded by someone else. Um, and I think one of the reasons for this is to avoid embarrassment, uh, any further embarrassment, although I think if somebody was advising Don Meredith, he probably should have done this a long time ago. Uh, but he, uh, he did stick with this for quite some time. And, and interestingly, I think that was what pushed the Senate Ethics Committee to recommend an unprecedented uh, uh, recommendation, actually, to expel him. Uh, so that's, uh, that was interesting, and I, and I think it was his inability to, uh, to kind of go quietly into that good night, uh, which was part of the problem here. Um, but uh, normally, uh, a, a senator will do this to, uh, uh, to avoid some embarrassment. The other reason, uh, which you rightly pointed out, uh, is that he continues to draw his pension if he does this, and and uh, he's not drawing it yet. He'll be drawing it uh, after he reaches age 55. But uh, because he has served six years in the Senate, he will be allowed to uh, to draw on that pension. If he had been expelled, that might have been put into question. That's my uh, next. Well, that's my next yeah. question. If it had gone further, may he have lost that? It's it's possible. We don't know because this is this as I was mentioning is unprecedented. Yeah. Um, actually, the Senate Ethics Committee that uh, that was looking into this this isn't one of their uh, their actually go to options that was put into the actual new code uh, of ethics that was uh, that was enacted by uh, the government in uh, June of 2014. And this came after many. Uh, incidents of senators uh, running mm-hmm. afoul of, I guess, good taste and ethics, uh, if I could put it mildly, uh, that it happened under the uh, Harper conservative uh, regime. Uh, and of course, I just have to mention people like Mike Duffy, uh, Duffy uh, Pamela Wallen, Patrick Brazo, for people to remember uh, some of those, uh, uh, I guess, non-senatorial senators uh, that we uh, that we remember in the news. Um, and so they they put the code in place in 2014 to kind of deal with this and and to have some kind of, of way to uh, maybe uh, kind of put a curb uh, to some of, of, uh, of the embarrassment of the Senate and, and get it under control. Um, and uh, the, uh, the punishments, are, if you will, uh, that were put forward under the code uh, ranged only really from forced public apology to suspension without pay, but not actually expulsion. So expulsion was something that the Senate committee decided to to go in that direction um, outside of the code, and this would have been to uh, bring in uh, Section 18 of the Constitution that has never actually been used in Canada. It's been used in the in UK, uh, but has not been used in, in, in a different section of, of their Constitution. But uh, the ex- expulsion of, of senators has never actually been done in Canada. So this would have been unprecedented. Um, 
And uh, the fact that they went to this uh, this length, I think, uh, really did uh, was a wake up call, I guess, finally to uh, former Senator uh, Don Meredith uh, and and kind of forced his hand, I think. Uh, uh, considering considering of the issue, considering the history of the issues that you've been mentioning, uh, if if we hadn't had those issues in the past couple of years, would this be an issue? Would this be treated this way? Do you think, or do you think, considering the history and what's happened lately? This is they. They really had no other choice. That's a, it's a good question. I don't. I don't know. It's hard to think of it outside of that context and um, and the kind of pressure that the Senate has been feeling uh, from external and internal forces. Um, even uh, you know we, all of these things we 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 can tag uh, politically uh, to the Conservatives or former Conservative government and actually Don Meredith is a Conservative appointee of Stephen Harper. So um, even that we can't um, we couldn't push it away as being. Uh, it, a partisan thing. It's uh, we've, we've got now uh, Prime Minister Trudeau uh, going in a direction of Senate reform that doesn't involve constitutional uh, um, change, uh, which is a is, is a dark road for Canadians to go down uh, because it brings up all kinds of other uh, you know uh, problems or in a Pandora's box. So uh, you know, trying to reform the Senate, he's he's done so by trying to make it a bit more nonpartisan, trying to put it more on this professional uh, level, uh, trying to restore some of that, um, uh, I guess, our, our faith in, in the body of it being a, a sober second thought. So it's really hard to think about this case outside of all of that, that kind of history that's put it into, uh, into this uh, chamber of disrepute in, in many respects. Having said that, though, what Don Meredith did was, uh, was pretty astoundingly uh, uh, in poor ethical taste, if I guess I'm and I'm and I'm being really light on many levels, that. on many I, levels, I, over and above being a senator. Absolutely, uh, he took a power and privilege position, and he manipulated a, a young girl in a in a manipulative uh, uh, or kind of a very vulnerable, I would suggest, position. Not only because of her age, but because of her her situation uh, beyond that. And and people can read she was she was recently uh, a, an immigrant to the the area and and had had been uh, I think looked up to him in in so many ways. So uh, it, there's there's a lot of areas that this has gone afoul of of our uh, our expectations in society um, and she probably could have brought this to uh, to a uh, you know a, a, a gone a different route and and brought this to the police um, and it would have been uh, he could have been charged with criminal charges uh, one of the reasons why I understand that she did not was was issues of confidentiality uh, on her part she was uh, assured that confidentiality by um, by the ethics commissioner and, uh, and the Senate Senate ethics commissioner in, in uh, the uh, uh, in the Senate in Canada, uh, whereas that couldn't have been uh, assured to her in the same way by the police. So that was one of the reasons why it didn't go in that direction. Um, and of course, he's denied any of that that criminal culpability. But it's it, even the ethics commissioner, when she wrote her report, found that it, most likely he did, uh, uh, you know, break the law, uh, and that she found him to be completely uh, not. Incredible. So uh, it, what he did was 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 quite outside the you know beyond the pale in in many respects, and he, it looked like he was trying to avoid or at least would have avoided criminal culpability. Um, so I think in this case, this is one of the reasons why the Senate moved into the area of, of expulsion probably easier than if this had been a different kind of of uh, ethics breach. 
Why so much of this lately um, in and around the Senate? I mean, the Senate's been there for uh, forever. Why are we hearing so much about this now? Was it always this way and just swept under the rug? Or is it with media the way it is, social media and such, these things are impossible to keep under wraps? It's probably a lot of, of all of that. Um, it is really difficult these days to keep these things under wraps. Um, there's a lot. It's a lot easier to find out things about people uh, and for uh, for us to have um, it, at least in this case, anyways. There was a, there was a, a really strong not paper trail electronic. Uh, trail that actually was was used to uh, uh, by the ethics commissioner, anyways, to really kind of uh, tip her hand uh, in her recommendations uh, of of, uh, of uh, him him actually going uh, forward toward the ethics uh, committee, and then and and I think they're formally their uh, their decision making. Um, you know, I can be skeptical, uh, and I think lots of us are, about the kinds of people that have been brought into the Senate in the past. The Senate has has unfortunately been uh, not a place of of uh, where we we think our our higher level um, and uh, uh, wonderful community members have been invited to uh, practice a level of legislative um, oversight that is it, it was intended to by the uh, Fathers of Confederation back. Uh, when we we adopted a UK par, uh, uh, constitution similar in, in principle to that of the United Kingdom, which is which is what our, uh, our parliamentary traditions and Westminster parliamentary traditions are based upon, um, it's become a place where bagmen uh, of uh, of uh, parties have uh, have been gone to uh, to die almost. Uh, they've been rewarded uh, if you've been a good party soldier. You. Um, you uh, you get to uh, to hang out in the Senate and and get a wonderful job with a, a great pay, one hundred forty five thousand dollars a year, uh, guaranteed pension, and uh, I I think there's a lot of Canadians that would love to have that uh, position. And I think it, it's the it's best kind of, political job there is. I you know if, if you asked if you if you offered me the job if it wasn't in such disrepute I would definitely have to consider it. I I, I have to agree with you completely, Scott. Yeah. Um, and and so if you look at even Don Meredith, you know he. He was uh, he, sure he he was a community member, a Pentecostal priest, or sorry, a minister. Um, he, he he had done things uh, of uh, I guess of note in his community. But why did he get put in the Senate? Well, he ran uh, in a by-election in Toronto. I, I believe, if I'm not mistaken, I, I wasn't able to double-check this. I think it was um, uh, Jack Layton's old writing. So where a conservative really doesn't have a chance. So he's a good conservative soldier. He came in fourth. In the election, in the by-election in 2007, he got 12% of the vote. Um, and he was obviously somebody that the party appreciated for, for doing that for them. Um, and when somebody was, uh, when Stephen Harper was looking to uh, to fill a bunch of Senate seats that he had to fill uh, because he was having trouble uh, actually getting his legislation through, uh, if you remember back in 2007, he was in a minority situation. Uh, the Senate was full of liberals. Uh, they were uh, they were causing all kinds of, of headaches for him uh, trying to push through uh, uh, his legislative uh, uh, agenda uh, after he had already had to navigate a minority parliament in in the House. Um, so and he 
for the longest time did not appoint senators because he wanted to reform it as well. He had different ideas about reforming, and we can talk about that if you like. Um, but, uh, you know, none of which uh, in his nine years of, of being in power he was able to enact. Um, so uh, he did. He kind of uh, decided, OK, I'm going to throw a bunch of people in there. And I think, to be honest with you, I don't know if there was a lot of due diligence done on his part or... Um, you know, the PMO's part, to actually decide uh, who to put in there. They, they thought, okay, we'll just reward our, our friends, and, uh, and, and in they go. Um, and I don't know if the same kind of vetting even, to be honest with you, was done uh, in this case, uh, and I can't speak to that because I'm not an insider, but uh, uh, that you would have uh, for an MP. Uh, uh, now, you know, I already mentioned that this person was running, but uh, there was, uh, you know, a snowball's chance in a hot place that he was probably going to get elected in that run. Um, so he was doing good wo- good work for the party, but uh, we have lots of it, and, and I don't want to just tag the conservatives with this. I can give you a, a ton of examples of the liberals the same, not the NDP because they've never been a po- in a position uh, of power to be actually able to promote any of their own. So there are no no NDP senators in the in the Senate at this at this point in time. Um, it's just uh, liberals and conservatives, but a lot of their own have been promoted, and I think that has kind of paved the way for some of these things to, to occur um, because there's this sense of entitlement, I think, uh, uh, for being uh, put in this really lovely job as opposed to the intent of, of the position in the first place. Uh, we've only got about 30 seconds left. How do you think the public's going to view this? Is this even playing in the public, do you think? Um, probably not. Uh, people like you and I and the pe- and your listeners are probably interested. Um, I don't think people are, except that it just adds more fuel to the fire of, of people that, that look at the Senate and uh, and turn their noses uh, up and say, "Wow, that's a useless place, and why don't we get rid of it?" Um, and you know, those are good conversations to have. And I think we could still work to to make the Senate a better place because it's still got uh, some ways to go. At least there's good indications that they're they're at least trying to clean it up. Cheryl Collier is with us, uh, Associate Professor, Political Science, University of Windsor. Cheryl, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. You're very welcome. You have a great day. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. All right, Donald Trump made the decision to fire FBI Director James Comey yesterday while suspicion of his own campaign ties with Russian government, with the Russian government, has grown. Kind of wonder why he didn't do this earlier, right after the election. Um, and why waited? Uh, he waited 100 days, uh, or over 100 days. We'll have to see uh, how this all pans out. Also interesting, uh, considering obviously Democrats uh, didn't like what Comey did uh, as far as releasing emails and demanded his head, and now that they have it, uh, uh, they're now crying foul. Uh, saying that the timing of this is all wrong. Let's bring in Michael Tobe, a Trimedia syndicated columnist, Washington Times contributor, former speechwriter for Stephen Harper. He is with us now. Hello, Michael. How are you today? I'm well, Scott. How are you doing? I'm doing very well. Thanks for the uh, time. We greatly uh, appreciate this. Uh, Here is a clip from Russian diplomat Sergei Lavrov. Listen to this. Does the Comey firing cast a shadow of your talk, gentlemen? Was he fired? You're kidding. Uh, is he being flipped tongue-in-cheek? What was that response, in your opinion? Well, it's hard to hear off of that. He was probably being flipped. I think that's probably the fairest thing to say. I can't get in his mind exactly. Um, you know, unfortunately, this is just the, the whole thing that people are discovering that, you know, as we passed the 100-day marker quite a bit ago with Donald Trump, is that everything 
involving the United States and other parts of the world just doesn't seem to lot make a lot of sense any longer. And the discussions that you think you would hold with, uh, say, domestic ministers or international ministers or leaders, etc., the whole world just seems at times to be <laughs> a bit crazy. And unfortunately, comments like this, while they're very isolated and very short, just sort of add to the puzzle. And it's, it's interesting. I think when people look back on this era at some point, they're going to sort of say that whether Donald Trump was a good thing or a bad thing for politics or for world events in general, he has definitely turned the world upside down. I think there's no question of that. Uh, obviously, uh, Democrats were upset about Comey for releasing emails prior to the election sure. and, and demanded his head then. Now, uh, what kind of predicament does this put them in when he all of a sudden fires Comey? What can they say? You know, it's interesting. <clears throat> they, they're in a bit of a quandary, and I think they realize it. They know that if they come out too hard and defend James Comey after he was pretty rough on them during last year's presidential election, it just looks like political opportunism. At the same time, what Trump did, which I think sort of blew everyone's mind yesterday, I don't think anyone expected it, including Mr. Comey, who was sitting on an airplane, either heading to or going back from L.A. when he caught the news, which is pretty stunning, and was given it by apparently an underling. Um, I think it's the same thing. I mean, Republicans don't exactly know what to do either. I mean, whether they like Mr. Comey or dislike Mr. Comey, they know that Mr. Comey's actions at times hurt them and at times benefited them last year. So it's a real issue to deal with here. And for the Democrats, I don't, to get back to them, I really don't know what they can do exactly other than criticize President Trump for just sort of coming up with this late-night action, this sudden decision that nobody was aware of, and throwing uh, basically surveillance and intelligence all into a complete, quant you know, complete mess that's going to be very, very difficult to get out of. Now, it's not that Donald Trump obviously won't go through the process and get someone to replace James Comey. He will. It may take some time, but he'll definitely do it. But as for right now, in terms of political tactics, the best thing for the Democrats to do, quite frankly, not that I really side with them at all on much of anything, is to just stay out of this as much as they can and just basically keep pointing at Donald Trump as the problem rather than what he actually did. Where does this leave the investigation that Comey was leading into uh, Russian interference with the election? It's a good question, and it's a hard one to answer. Um, I, I assume that the investigation will continue on. I think that's probably fair to say. And it's certainly a lot of people are speculating that, irrespective of the note that came out from the White House and from Mr. Trump, apparently, you know, noting that on three separate occasions, Mr. Comey reassured him that, that the president was not the main focus of this whole investigation to Russia or just the Russia file in general. I, the investigation has to continue because <clears throat> I think the American people want closure on it. That's without question. They're frustrated by this situation. I'm sure they can't believe that nearly six months after the fact they're still discussing it. And for the foreseeable future, it looks like they're going to discuss it. They just want this to end at some point in time. But without the lead figure there, who was Mr. Comey, it, it then sort of goes down to, well, will his replacement, whether he or she is nominated in a few weeks or a few months, will that person then want to continue uh, with the investigation at the same sort of intensity that Mr. Comey apparently was doing it at? 
I don't think there's any question there will still be an investigation. I don't think that there's any question that there will be a conclusive report at the end of it. But the intensity that we've seen with Mr. Comey and his his loyal, you know, his, basically his loyal staff and staff members, I don't know if we're going to necessarily see it quite at that same level. There will be a point of resolution for sure, but I wonder how strongly or how much effort and time and resources is now going to be spent with an investigation that must be finished, but the question is, will it be finished properly? Will that force another independent uh, investigation? Are people going to look at this investigation as being tainted? They might, but on the other hand, how many of these can you do? I mean, you can't have investigation after investigation or an investigation of an investigation. At some point, you have to have closure, and I don't know when that is. And I don't know if necessarily, to be honest, Scott, that anybody will be, net, will be content with whatever they eventually come up with as either the hmm. answer for what happened here or the, the reasons that it led to that point. Because people are always just going to speculate that no matter what the CIA states, and no matter what, sorry, what the FBI states, and no matter what they come down with, the end result is going to be that people are just going to wonder behind the scenes, well, would Mr. Comey have produced a more legitimate report? Did Donald Trump pick someone who he knew was going to be a little bit softer on him? Or is this all there ever was? And it doesn't matter whether James Comey or Mickey Mouse is the head of it, it would have been the same thing. And that's a question that I don't think we'll ever have a full answer about. We'll get some, as I said, we'll get some sort of a closure. We'll get some sort of a resolution. There will be a definitive statement. But will people all be, all be content with it? I doubt it. Uh, if there is something here, uh, can he keep a lid? Can Trump keep a lid on it? Or will it be found out eventually? Well, that's a tough one. Uh, you know, obviously... And we have to be careful how we discuss this, because there really may be nothing to this, Scott. As crazy as it all sounds... Let me stop you there, Michael. Yes. If there is nothing here, why is he trying so hard to shoot himself in the foot? If there is nothing here, why does he keep creating confusion for himself? Well, then it goes back to the whole argument, have the psychiatrists and psychologists been yeah. right, that something is going on in Donald Trump's mind. Yeah. This could be something completely different. This could just simply be a part of his character, Scott. Remember, even though we saw Donald Trump as a public figure when he was a businessman, a reality TV star, and so forth, the microscope wasn't on every little minutia of his life. We didn't know all of his private thoughts. We didn't all know of his private ideas. Aside from that tape that was released by Extra TV, which we, you know, with the graphic details about what he did to women, other than that, we've not really heard a lot in terms of private comments and private communications that Donald Trump has had. This just may be something with his personality. Again, I don't know. I'm not suggesting it. I don't even know if I'm right. But there has certainly been a lot of speculation the last two years that there's just something going on in that man's mind. But if that isn't the case, you're right. Then he just has a propensity to shoot himself in the foot on a regular basis. Would, would then would lead you to believe that he's sort of similar to Toronto Mayor Rob Ford, the late Rob Ford, mm. who kind of did this as well to himself on a regular basis. Every time something was good, he would find the worst possible situation, back himself into a corner, and get himself into more trouble. Perhaps Donald Trump has that same sort of personality. Again, it's all speculation on my part, but who knows? There may be something to it. So getting back to the fire of, of Comey, why now? I mean, obviously, this creates speculation that the FBI was getting too close to something. Right. 
it does. You're absolutely right. Why now? And I think that's what everyone in the United States who's involved in either politics or policy is asking right now, because it doesn't even matter if you agree with this decision. The timing just seems so illogical based on what you're saying, that no matter what Donald Trump did, by firing him, pardon me, months after he started as president, it looks like he's almost as you say, or alluded to, scared or worried that something is going to be revealed. On the other hand, it could just simply be that Donald Trump acts on a whim. He is known to do this. He's been prone to do this. There have been reports coming out from the media, well, publicly and privately, for months, from publications like the Washington Post, Political Magazine, and others, all sort of suggesting that he does the presidency on the fly, that he just sort of comes up with these wild ideas. His staff is able to basically knock most of them out, but a few of them continue to fester. It also makes you wonder whether some of his senior advisors behind the scenes, besides Mr. Rosenstein, who wrote that large piece that, that basically ended James Comey's career, with the exception of him, you wonder if some of the senior advisors have been sort of pushing Donald Trump for the, since literally day one to just get rid of James Comey. I think personally, and I think most people would suggest this, that he should have done it really early on, the first yeah. week, the first or second week. But is there a, would there have been a good time? Well, if he was going to do it, you have to pick a time. Sometimes yeah. there just isn't a good time. Yeah. We, we all know that. Um, I think you do it earlier rather than later. So if you do it at the beginning of your presidency, you can sort of use the argument, well, I'm trying to clean shop and I just want to get somebody new in there. Nothing personal against Mr. Comey. I just think it's the right thing to do. And that would have sort of made sense because he still, believe it or not, to this day, has thousands and thousands of positions to fill throughout Washington. So why wouldn't he have wanted to put his stamp on on the FBI? It would have made perfect sense at the time. Now that it's been a few months, while certainly it may have just been a whim or something that was forthcoming or that he just tried to sort of throw everybody off their game and just throw this out one evening and stun the world, there is the possibility that he just finally reached this conclusion the last few days and just decided to call it a day based on some recent testimony that Mr. Comey had given and sort of suggesting about, uh, you know, differences of opinion yeah. when it comes to Russian intelligence, etc. Maybe he just finally reached his tipping point. It could be as simple as that. Until someone reports on it or until we have a further explanation, it's all speculation at this point. So is this good timing for Trump because the Democrats really can't object? I think it's, you know, the timing is not perfect, but I think it's probably the best case scenario he could have with a worst case scenario decision and the worst case scenario decision to go with the latter is that he gets somebody in there who's seen as his pawn that in other words the next fbi director is not seen as a strong personality or someone that he could quote unquote bully around we're not suggesting that that's the route he's going to take and i don't think he will But when names like Chris Christie and others are sort of popping up as possible replacements, and as we know, Chris Christie was one of the first Republican presidential candidates to drop out and endorse Mr. Trump in the first place, it does make you wonder to some degree. But yeah, I mean, for the Democrats, look, they're going to keep hammering away at it as hard as they possibly can, because... 
they know it's the right thing to do. But as long as they make it about more about Trump than they make it about the firing and just how people are losing confidence in this president, he's just doing things in sort of a crazy manner, whatever language they want to use, that will work to their political advantage. But for Trump, actually, the whole trick is who he gets to replace Comey. If he gets someone that both Republicans and Democrats like, who has a, a solid legal record or a solid record as a crime fighter, someone who believes that you know, the terrorism is a major threat, or who is someone who has been very critical of Russia for many years in the way they've handled things, I think that could actually work to his advantage. For the next few days, it's advantage Democrats for sure. There are still ways, however, for Donald Trump to actually make this not only about him, but create something positive about his presidency. But it's going to take a long while and a lot of different roads to get there. Again, timing, uh, Russian foreign minister in Washington, any connection there? And what about Flynn being subpoenaed to appear before this uh, Russian interference um, hearing? Uh, again, just, just coincidence? Well, the Russia foreign minister thing, I, you know, I can't believe that everything these people come up with, that being the Trump White House, is all part of a strategy. I mean, <clears throat> I was part of a very strategic group when I was part of the Harper's Prime Minister's Office, the PMO. And yeah, sure, we did a lot of strategic things, but sometimes things just fell into place in a certain fashion. That really is honestly how it happened. Sometimes you're tactically working towards brilliance, and sometimes just luck where it sort of plays a bit of an element. I think the same thing is happening in the Trump White House, which is much smaller and doesn't have as many key minds in it. I think they certainly are trying to build a case that Trump is a strong president and he needs strong people around him. But the fact that the Russian foreign minister is around, I, I don't think that there is any relation. If there is, or if it's ever found out to be one day, God knows where this scenario goes. As for Michael Flynn, you know, Michael Flynn's name is Mud in Washington. I think that's pretty safe to say right now, Scott. Certainly, it's an issue that has to be dealt with, and we have to find out what Mr. Flynn knew and whether he was passing secrets on to other governments. You know, there is a, there's a real concern about him that, quite frankly, I think that President Trump and his senior advisors are telling the truth about that they really didn't know how tied he was to certain regimes, even though obviously there had been rumors that Flynn was dealing with this country and this world leader for years, no one was able to connect the dots until recently, because he would never have made this man the NSA director if you had known some of these things. So the Flynn thing, you know, is coming to a head, so that just sort of unfortunately will push it a higher up on the news cycle. But again, for a lot of these things, is it all strategic? Is this all part of a master plan? Some things in politics are. We all know that whether you believe in the political process or whether you have your own little anger or frustration about it. But to believe that everything ties together and that this is part of a, a major plan that Donald Trump and his advisors are planning? No, I don't think so. Yeah, when you consider everything else that happened, uh, maybe we're giving them too much credit. All right, um, Saturday Night Massacre, lots of comparisons to the Nixon administration. Those fair right now, considering uh, Comey and such? <laughs> well, the Nixon li presidential library came out and said, no, we didn't fire the FBI director. Why are you comparing us to yeah. him? And I can sort of understand that. Look, I mean, obviously, Richard Nixon was a very complex individual, and we don't have time to get into it, but I'm sure a lot of your listeners certainly of a certain age, remember Nixon very well. They remember Watergate. 
They remember the paranoia that this man had with all the various tapes that he made. And you sit back decades later and just wonder why would anyone be so foolish not only to tape himself, but to keep these tapes for such a long period of time. But again, that's, you know, that's part of the sands of time. That's how history works. But is it the same thing? No. I mean, Nixon and Trump are two very, very different presidents, even at this early stage in Trump's presidency in his first term. You know, very different people. They look at politics in very different ways. Nixon was a far more experienced politician and more polished overall, whereas Trump obviously isn't. But no, I don't think you can necessarily compare it. I know people want to, and I know they want to keep up bringing Watergate and that this is an era of fascism and various other things. We haven't really seen that with Donald Trump. We've seen a lot of zaniness. We've seen sort of like a sideshow atmosphere that you would resemble the circus or a political circus. But we're not actually seeing something akin to Watergate quite yet. I know that a lot of people are very frustrated with Donald Trump. They don't know what to expect. They're fearful that this man is close to nuclear weapons and has to make major decisions and all that. You do have to keep in mind that even if he is the most powerful man in the world, he does have a lot of senior advisors around him. He has some people that he will trust, including business leaders who, thank God, I think sort of look at the world in a fairly normal fashion. And in the end, the irony is that for all his bluster, and Donald Trump has a ton of it, he does in the end seem to listen to people from time to time. Not just his son-in-law, Jared Kushner, not just his daughter, Ivanka Trump, but others. You've just got to hope that, you know, whatever people that they bring in, an H.R. McMaster, you know, a Rex Tillerson, uh, a General Mattis and others, these are people with some, you know, some, with a lot of intelligence and some understanding, or they're gaining an understanding of how the political process works. Just hope that they can control them. If they can, this presidency may not be as bad as, well, it seemed the past few months. Uh, one last question, Michael. Uh, got about 30 seconds here. Sure. Are you confident this investigation into Russian interference will stay on track? To be very honest with you, I think that it will stay on track in the sense that it will complete itself. It will finish itself. It won't suddenly stop one day and we won't ever hear about it again. Will we get the final result that we probably could have under a James Comey administration or regime? I'm not 100% sure of that. All I can say is, as I often do, let's just hope for the best and prepare for the worst. Michael Tobis been with us, Troy Media syndicated columnist and Washington Times contributor. Michael, as always, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. My pleasure, Scott. Take care. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. All right, Christy Clark re-elected as Premier of British Columbia last night, winning a minority government in a very close election. To talk more about all of this, Christo Avalis is with us, Queen's University Labor and Political History Professor, and is on the line with us now. Hello, Christo. How are you today? Good, good. How are you? I'm doing very well. Thank you for taking the time to join us. We appreciate this. Uh, your thoughts on the outcome of the election in British Columbia uh, yesterday? Well, you know, about a week ago, this would have maybe what we would uh, what we would have expected, which would have basically be a dead heat in a sense. You know, a week before that, it looked like the NDP was going to win. But, you know, going into the election, the momentum seemed to be with Christy Clark and the Liberals. The polls were... Um, you know, getting uh, more and more favorable for them every day. A lot of the aggregate sites on the CBC, for instance, were predicting a, a liberal majority government and a potentially healthy one. 
Um, so it's a bit of a surprise in that sense. I mean, it is appearing to be, you know, a liberal minority government, of course, you know, on, on recounts and, and, you know, absentee ballots, uh, ridings may flip uh, one way or the other. There is one riding that's uh, currently less than 10 votes, uh, differentiating the liberal uh, or the NDP winner from the liberal second place. And if that flips to the liberals, they would have a majority. Um, conversely, you know, Christy Clark does have the opportunity to form government right now. But uh, as it stands, there could be a coalition between the B.C. Greens and John Horgan's NDP um, to form government with 44 seats as well. Uh, did Donald Trump help Christy Clark with his protectionist views? I'm not sure. Um, uh, that's, that certainly was an, a talking point. And, and last night in Christy Clark's speech, um, she did mention that, you know, in, beyond the, the kind of general perception that they, they've been good stewards of the economy, the uncertainty south of the border, and, you know, she's talking about Donald Trump, um, makes it all the more important to, um, to have stability within the provincial government. So I think that's certainly the talking point. Um, I don't know if that, if that ultimately helped her. I think what helped her was, um, you know, the, in, more than anything else, the, the increase in the Green Party's vote. Uh, let's talk about that. Is is politics shifting in Canada? Uh, you know, at one time we would have never heard of, of, of what you're saying now. And, and obviously, Christy Clark comes in with a minority. Is the face of Canadian politics changing? I mean, that's, that's, that's tricky. I mean, in B.C., this is, for B.C. politics, yeah, it's, it's normal. unprecedented, right? Yeah. Because, you know, um, whereas in Ontario, we have and have had since, you know, the rise of the CCF, or really even going back to the United Farmers, we've had a three-party system in Ontario. But in B.C., we haven't had a minority government in 65 years. It's usually been the CCF-NDP on the one hand and a general coalition of anything but NDP voters on the other. Um, so, you know, the rise of a, of a third party, in, at least when the election is close between the Liberals and the NDP, will make for a different uh, set of politics in B.C. But, I mean... In terms of the, 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 what that means, you know, federally or here in Ontario, I'm, I'm not sure. Uh, why a minority this time, do you think? I think the, you know, the voters were, were split. I think there was a segment of voters who, um, from the B.C. Liberals' perspective, um, see it as a strong economy. They see, you know, a place where people from not just Canada, but all over the world want to live and want to work, want to do business. And I think in that sense, there's a lot of optimism about, the BC economy, but I think, uh, and the NDP was effective at showing that, you know, aggregate statistics are all fine and good, you know, low unemployment is fine and good, but, but there's a real divide between the have and have nots in British Columbia, and, you know, it's not just, you know, uh, raw prosperity, but the division of that prosperity, and the Greens can say that, you know, BC is doing great in a lot of ways, but the environmental question uh, is paramount to a lot of people there, and that maybe goes beyond the the traditional um, divides between the Liberals and the NDP. Uh, recently in politics all over the world, we've seen anti-establishment votes, protest votes, populist movements. Is that a play here? Uh, you know, I'm not sure. I, I mean, I don't think the, the Green Party vote was a protest vote. I think if you look at where it's located, it's in a traditional area of the country, and this right. is around where Elizabeth May wins, that the Green Party is, is, quite, is quite strong. You know, the Green Party... Um, if anything, is, is more of a technocratic party, at least in a lot of the people they choose to run. They, they were selling the fact that they had a, 
you know, so many PhDs running and, and all of this sort. And, you know, uh, their, their leader is a, you know, a scientist. So I think in that sense, I don't know if it's populism uh, or a protest vote. I feel that this was a kind of traditional election in the sense where there's a government running with baggage, but a decent record, uh, you, know, a, a, you know, in an aggregate sense, versus, you know, an NDP that was, that was bringing substantive and legitimate criticisms of that record. And that's why it basically ended in a tie. What is the future? You talked about the Green making inroads in BC. What is the future for them? As most parties have have pretty much stolen their thunder and all become green in some way. I mean, obviously their supporters wouldn't see that, but but certainly there's the Green Party has influenced other parties greatly. Where does that leave them? I mean, it's tricky, and I mean that's to a certain degree what's always kind of hit the the NDP in a sense is that historically whether it was here in Ontario with the, the Conservatives throughout the, the really long uh, government from the 40s to the 80s, that, you know, social programs and, and basic labor reforms were taken. The Green Party is seeing that to a certain degree with environmentalism. Uh, so that is going to make it harder for them. Uh, the Green Party also has a difficulty because they have a divergence in their voters that maybe other parties don't have, especially small parties, which, you know, can often be seen as ideologically kind of coherent, the, the Green Party, on the one hand, has you know quite far left people, you know maybe radical environmentalists, uh, you know people who might identify as NDPers on a, a lot of ways. But then you might include alongside of them, you know, kind of uh, eco capitalists, right? Who who see the you know the, the climate change is the defining issue of our time, but see free market solutions to that issue, and you know squaring that ideological circle could be very difficult and. The challenge with the Green Party here is that, you know, if they don't play their cards right, if it is a minority government and they back the B.C. Liberals, for instance, that might alienate a lot of progressive voters who would maybe otherwise give them their vote and, you know, maybe gave them their vote this time instead of voting NDP. Now that uh, we obviously know out west, and especially with British Columbia uh, having the characteristic that it does as a province, uh, always issues with energy, uh, transporting across the province, or from from their ports to other parts of the world. How does a minority uh, government complicate that, or does it? Well, you know, I think in a sense, if you're looking at something like pipelines, and you have a government, uh, the Liberals, that are generally supportive of that, of that, you know, of that industry, um, you know, now being faced with a, a potential minority government, um, you know, that could that could add uncertainty in that, you know, whether it's the NDP forming a coalition with the Greens or whether it's, you know, Andrew Weaver saying, look, I want three things. And he kind of said this, you know, um, you know, last night saying, you know, I'm willing to work with either party. I want electoral reform. I want campaign finance reform. And I want, you know, uh, you, you know, re- restrictions on things like pipelines. And if you can get those things from either party, uh, you might see a, 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 you know, a, a movement on that. So there could be some nervous people in the energy industry you know, right now. All right, uh, let's move on. Uh, Jagmeet Singh uh, going to announce a bid for the uh, NDP leadership, which has uh, pretty much taken a backseat to uh, the conservative leadership race to this point. Uh, talk about this and what this brings to the race. Well, yeah, no, you're right. Certainly the conservative leadership race has kind of taken the... I mean, say, and rightfully so. I mean, the winner of that, that race uh, represents a bigger party in the House of Commons, and, uh, you know, uh, the leader instantly becomes the uh, leader of the opposition, so it's the bigger race. Jagmeet Singh, uh, you know, he's going to bring a lot of energy. Um, there's a, you know, uh, Nikki Ashton is also a young person, but Jagmeet Singh is also under 40. 
Um, he brings uh, a new image for the NDP. Historically, both in Ontario and federally, the NDP has struggled with uh, uh, certain new Canadian communities, um, whereas the Liberal Party, and at least under Stephen Harper, the Conservatives did quite well. So having Jagmeet Singh as a, you know, a face or the face of the party federally could kind of give a new image to the NDP. Um, he's very, he has a Trudeau-esque uh, quality to him. He's young, he's handsome, he's charismatic. You know, there was a GQ uh, cover story or not, a GQ uh, spread on him, uh, you know, a, few, a couple months ago. So in that sense, he'll bring a lot of excitement to the race. Um, so, yeah. And maybe more so than the PCs now that O'Leary's out of the race. I mean, really, is anybody paying attention anymore? You know, I think, well, I mean, I, I think you're right that o- O'Leary um, was, was driving ratings, for lack of a better term, on the, on the conservative leadership race. I think right now, from a lot of people's perspective, there's, wait, there's waiting. I mean, we're in this lull right now. The members who have signed up um, have signed up. You can't sign up any new members right now. Um, uh, to, to, to join the leadership race. So now it's about, you know, horse jockeying. And at least the perception right now, if you look at polling, is that maybe Maxime Bernier is running away with it. I'm not sure it's over, but there could be a perception that, that Maxime Bernier is the favorite and that, you know, the race is going to take a bit of a holding pattern until we get closer to the convention. No real uh, front runner or standout candidate in the NDP race. Does Singh bring this? It's, it's hard to say. One of the things that's come out you know, today, the Globe and Mail had a piece where they talked about Singh's announcement. They also noted some of the preliminary fundraising uh, figures. And what that showed is that um, you know, Charlie Angus is kind of far and away ahead of uh, everybody else. He was basically you know, doubling the second-place uh, competitor, which is Nikki Ashton, you know, shortly, quickly followed by Guy Caron. And, and uh, Peter Julian is a, is a bit behind them, but you know, Peter Julian has perhaps more than the others, gotten a lot of endorsements from the caucus. So I would say, in a sense, if, if the grassroots energies right now for the NDP might be with Charlie, uh, Charlie Angus, you know, does Dagmeet Singh address that? It, you know, in a certain way, I think that's possible, but they might speak to different constituencies. Charlie Angus is uh, northern, he's blue-collar, um, He's a, you know, a, almost a kind of traditional CCF NDP populist, whereas Jagmeet Singh is very urban, very cosmopolitan. I think both of those elements are required for the NDP to win. The question is, um, you know, do, do they kind of build two separate constituencies? But I certainly feel he has the chance to jump in and be, you know, a favorite for the contest. Uh, is this party, is the NDP party fighting for an identity at this point, uh, whether to go uh, further left or bring it more to the mainstream? And how does Singh fit into that picture? You know, I think that is one of the debates happening right now. Um, some people felt that the election in, 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 uh, in 2015 was lost on ideology. Uh, you know, in other words, that, that the public was in finally in a mood, in a sense, for a, a left-wing vision. Even if the liberals aren't providing it in reality, they provided it in rhetoric, um, and and the NDP failed to match that, or at least uh, you know match, uh, or at least appear to match it. Um, or some argue that well, Mulcair lost for strategic reasons, and there's no there's no need to to really change the 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 course too much. I think from the perception so far is that all four of the people running are running generally left leaning campaigns relative to Tom Mulcair's leadership. Uh, I would say especially Ashton and Angus, 
But even uh, Peter Julian on on his very you know stringent no pipelines policy is doing that. Singh, I really don't know. I don't know what his position will be ideologically. Um, you, it's difficult to translate you know a provincial politician to be the the federal debates and, and where he lines up on them. Uh, obviously, during election time, liberals seem to, you know, to uh, campaign to the left uh, and, and, and in many situations just blatantly steal ideas off the NDP. Uh, is the NDP's best uh, plan of attack to go even farther left and appeal to the base, or is it try to aim at the mainstream like Jack Layton was? I guess it, I guess it depends on the context, right? I mean, in the sense of Jack Layton in 2011, he probably played the cards correctly in that he saw a, a weak liberal party, you know, under a, a leader that many people felt was ineffectual uh, or was at least easily, easily dis, uh, dis, discarded by the, you know, by the, the media narratives and campaign narratives. Um, and then, you know, were able to target that soft center. Uh, on the other hand, when someone like Justin Trudeau, who has a progressive image, runs a you know, a more of a left-leaning campaign, I think the NDP needs to kind of jump ahead of that. Um, and, you know, depending on the person who p- wins the conservative leadership, that could also affect things. If someone like, you know, uh, Andrew Scheer or even Maxime Bernier, who can appeal to maybe a lot of social progressives who are also fiscal conservatives, that could make it difficult for the Trudeau liberals, pulling them to the center, which could create more room on the left for the NDP. I mean, I think, uh, in a sense, what you're seeing from Andrea Horwath here in Ontario is that the party is banking on, we're going to go progressive. The Liberals can match us on some policies or they can try to offer, you know, iterations, but they won't meet us the whole way if we, for instance, bring back compulsory first contract arbitration to make it easier to form unions, you know, a $15 minimum wage, uh, you know, uh, getting rid of uh, the student loan debt on tuition. Uh, provincially, I don't think the Liberals in Ontario are going to match uh, Horwath in that sense, and I think that might be the strategy right now: is don't uh, don't let yourself be co-opted. Uh, is this a big opportunity for the NDP, considering where politics is in the world right now? You know, uh, I mean, that was a very broad question, but I, I think I think there there is a, there is an opportunity right now. There is an opportunity to. Um, to really go after uh, a, a Trudeau government uh, or a Kathleen Wynne government, they're, you know, they're, they're more similar than maybe people realize, that you know, has made progressive promises, that has kind of relied on a, a fear of, of, of conservatives to kind of monopolize this broad center-left spectrum. And the NDP could offer uh, an alternative to that. And whether it's, you know, this growth of, of progressive politics south of the border via Bernie Sanders, there seems to be an appetite for for a, a different vision of politics, especially as the right, especially as the right in conservatism tries to redefine itself now. Yeah, and I mean that's a tricky part in Canada too. It's all a lot of this is going to depend, and this is maybe for the Liberal Party more than the NDP is what kind of conservatism do we see? You know, in the federal party, do we see? You know, a Trumpian-style conservatism through someone like Kelly Leach, or do we see a more or less continuance of the Stephen Harper brand under someone like uh, Andrew Scheer, or do we see almost a a return to the the 1970s Joe Clark, 
Stanfield type conservatives under someone like, uh, you know, Michael Chong? Or finally, do we see something that's really more of a, uh, a libertarianism under Maxime Bernier? And all of those offer different opportunities and challenges to, you know, the conservative movement in Canada and re- will really affect the kind of the sort of, of swing voter they'll be targeting. You know, uh, someone who's a, a social conservative might do well in certain blue collar ridings that maybe are NDP conservative swings, but someone like Maxime Bernier might really appeal to cosmopolitan liberals who really don't like the, you know, the social conservative line, but really love the low taxes, low regulation, pro-innovation line as well. Christo Abelis has been with us, Queen's University Labor and Political History Professor. Christo, as always, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Thanks for having me again. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML.